Psalms, and this morning we'll study and read the first psalm. Let's first have a word of prayer. Lord God, you are our all in all, you are our greatest and highest good. You supply our needs, you go before us, you come behind us, you hem us in, you uphold us with your strong right hand. Lord, more than this, you have redeemed us. You have sought us while we were your enemies. You sent your son to die for us. And with your spirit, you drew us. And with your gospel, you saved us. And through the work of your son, even now, you are securing and sanctifying us. And Lord, one day we will be with you in glory. And so Lord, now we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see, give us ears to hear, that you would give the increase, that we would not be like those who look in a mirror and walk away and forget, but that we would learn and be changed, and that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. To give you a bit of a roadmap, an idea of where we're headed for the next few weeks, um, for the month of August, for the next four Sundays, five including this Sunday, we will be in the book of Psalms. I love the book of Psalms. It's been a growing passion for me. Given that there's 150 chapters, and one psalm alone is really the length of many chapters elsewhere, it's impractical, I think, to try to preach through the psalms systematically. But what I'd like to do is do a selection from the first book of the psalms. The psalms, whoever finally arranged the Psalter, and psalm just means song, but whoever is responsible somebody after the Babylonian captivity, arranged them into books, clearly seen. Some suspect to uh, imitate the five books of Moses. And so the first book of the Psalms includes Psalms 1 through 40. And we're going to be doing some selections from that. And then after Labor Day, we are going to dive into 1 Timothy. And so as we're going to be in the Psalms for the next five weeks, um, just a little bit of introduction on how the Psalms work and, and why they're so significant. Probably the most unique attribute of the Psalms is that unlike other scripture, where primarily in the rest of the Bible we have God talking to man, right? So we have God speaking to man, God addressing man. But in the Psalms, what we get is spirit-filled, holy men and women talking to God. And we get to watch how they do that. So it's still God teaching us. But in a very different way. He's teaching us how godly people suffer. How godly people repent. How godly people praise and rejoice. How godly people hope. How godly people fight depression. And so the Psalms give us this picture of how does a godly person deal with discouragement? How would the Lord have me grieve? How would the Lord have me cry out to him for help. And again, not that we're to pray the Psalms and read the Psalms um, robotically as if there's magic in the, rec the recitation of them, but rather it's sort of a roadmap for repenting, a roadmap for rejoicing, a roadmap for crying out to God for help. And in that sense, it has been very helpful and very instructive for me. Because when I'm in sorrow, when I'm in discouragement, I'll, I'll cling to a Psalm and I'll, and I'll try to let my heart be led by it. Kind of like a a pole that a vine grows on. Okay, this is how the Lord would have me think and pray and work as I read the Psalms. The Psalms are an incredible 
treasury for us. That God has given us 150 songs to sing to each other, to sing to him. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first song, the first psalm. It's short, it's well-known, it's well-loved. Many of us could probably recite it from memory. And yet it is profound. It is deep. And it lays out two paths. Um, Hebrew poetry uses double lines, parallelism, parallel lines, sometimes three lines. And they use them in different ways. In this psalm, the, the parallel lines develop thoughts. So something is said in the first line, and then it's developed further and further. So that's the way this psalm works. The structure's pretty <coughs> clear and evident. There are three contrasts. Three contrasts showing the way of blessing, the way of life, and the way of death, the way of the wicked. Um, three different contrasts, two roads, if you will. This opening psalm is, is very similar to the wisdom literature in that sense. There's only two options. There's the path of blessing and life, and there's the path of death and cursing. There are two teams. There, there are sons of the devil, there are sons of God. And it forces us in that sort of binary approach to ask ourselves, which path are we on? And I think many of us would prefer that there be a third sort of middle road, sort of carpool lane, but Jesus himself said, you know, there's a narrow path, there's a broad path. There's no carpool lane. And in that sense, this psalm can be a little daunting because the standard it sets up on both sides is so high that it can be intimidating. And it, as we get ready to dive in, it's helpful to remember these are two ideals. These are two roads. The real question is, which one are we moving down? Which of these ideals are we moving towards? The path of life, the path of death. What describes our lives? So having said that, let's read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, there's two types of people. There's the righteous, there's the wicked. There's the blessing, there's the curse. And so we're going to look at our three sets of contrasts. In the first, we see there are two different delights. Two different delights. The very first word of the very first psalm in the Psalter is literally how blessed. It's really the plural of blessedness. It's emphatic. How happy. How blessed. How joyful. In what a good estate is this man. And everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants joy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus puts out reward. Rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven, he will say. The challenge is whether we're looking for our joy and our reward in him or in things. And as long as we're looking for our joy and reward in him, it's good to seek your joy. This psalm starts off with the assumption, we want a blessing. We want joy. 
We want good things. The challenge is, where are you looking for them? And, and so he starts off with a negative contrast. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so we see that negatively, this path to blessing, this person is not a lover of the world. Not a lover of the world. And there's a sense of progression here. Remember I was talking about how these, these parallel lines can develop a thought. So what starts as sort of a walking in the council eventually becomes a sort of standing. You picture someone walking to, you know, somewhere and eventually he stops and stands with the people he's talking up to and now they're standing in the way talking and he ends up over at you know, somebody's house for dinner sitting in their seat. There's a progression here of wickedness. And it starts with the counsel of the wicked that moves to the way of sinners and sits in the seat of scoffers. And so this contrast that we see is, on the one hand, the way of, that does not lead to blessing, the way to cursing, the way to um, death, starts with the counsel of the world, with the wisdom of the world, with the way of sinners. And it leads then to companionship and friendship and ultimately identification. This is where we live. This is where we sit. This, these are the people we gather and fellowship with. And so it's, it's, a, it's a dark progression. But there's, there's all sorts of companions. You know, we aren't people who generally walk where we're going. We drive in cars. So this sort of picture of walking and standing in the way is, doesn't equate to us as well. But maybe we could ask, you know, blessed is the man who doesn't surround himself with these types of influences. And there are ways we can do this. There are all sorts of companions. The radio, and what you listen to on the music is a companion. It instructs you. You can receive the counsel of the world from radio stations, from the television, from the books you read, certainly from the people you spend time with. And so it's a convicting and challenging question to ask, who are our companions? With whom do we spend our time? Where do we soak and steep our mind? Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, a familiar passage says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. And the psalmist here could add, or the understanding of the wicked. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Or turn to Proverbs 13, 20. See, there's a, there's a sense of guilt by association that happens in the Bible, especially here. If you associate with, if you move with and run with a certain crowd, a certain type of person, it's going to spread to you. Proverbs 13, 20. And again, this notion of walking is conducting yourself. As you walk about, as you conduct your daily life, are you walking in the way with the wicked and in their counsel? Are you standing in the way with sinners? Are you sitting in the seat of scoffers? And Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Make no mistake, if, if our companionship, if where we spend our time, if what we surround ourselves is with foolishness, worldly thinking, sin, it will have its effect on us. You know, one of the convicting questions sometimes I'll ask the high school students just about television and movies, do you enjoy, are you entertained by things that God hates? Do you like to laugh at things? 
that provoke God to anger and jealousy? It's a challenging question. Do we walk in the council of fools? Do we stand in the way of sinners? Do we sit in the seat of scoffers? Do we like scoffing and laughing and jesting at things that God finds detestable? It's a challenging, convicting question. Positively, where does this path of blessing lead to? If that's not where the path of blessing goes, if we are to stay away from that, positively, not a lover of the world, but a lover of the word. I mean, notice the language here. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So he's not running after the crowd. He's not running after the world. He's not filling his head with their thoughts and ideas. But what he does do, this blessed man or woman, is he delights in God's word. He delights in scripture. And he thinks and meditates about it day and night. This word for delight is just your joy. It's not a duty. And this can be challenging for Christians because, you know, how many of you here think if you're a good Christian, you've got to have a quiet time every day? You've got to read your Bible every day. It's, it's a good idea to have a quiet time. It's a good idea to read your Bible. But if we approach it that way, it quickly becomes a duty. And it's hard to find delight in duty, isn't it? It's hard to find delight in those things that we feel forced to do. Um, and so the challenge here is, is to, to get a heart that delights in the word. It doesn't say this blessed person is one who has their quiet time. Rather, it says this blessed person is one who delights in reading God's word and delights to meditate on it. The standard is higher than simply a box to check. It can almost be a sort of dangerous way approach to the Bible where it becomes a magic book and a verse away keeps the, a verse a day keeps the devil away. And, and that's not the idea here. Rather, the contrast here is between walking in the way, what you're surrounding yourself with, and the other side is what you're surrounding yourself with biblically. And that's what the word meditate gets at. In Hebrew, it's the word, see if I can say this correctly, it's actually, just like we have words in English, it's called onomatopoeia, where a word sounds like the thing it describes, like a buzzing bee. The word buzz sounds like the actual sound the bee makes. This is the same thing here. It's supposed to be the sound of muttering and of low sound of someone contemplating and thinking. It, the word literally means to growl or mutter. And so the depiction is, is sort of that sort of sound that can happen when someone's deep in thought, reading, thinking. Um, it, that's the notion of meditating here. And it's striking to think, and I want you to stop and think. Can you think of any verses in the Scripture that call upon you to read Scripture? I can only think of one. And, and there it's talking about public reading. See, reading the Bible is only a step towards the goal that Scripture would have for us. It's a necessary step. But what the Scripture calls us to do, rather, is to meditate, to think, to muse upon. This word of the law shall not depart from your mouth, in your ear. You shall speak it. You shall teach it. These are the words Scripture uses with itself. So reading in most cases, is a necessary step. But if we just read and move on and forget, James tells us we're like somebody who looks at his face in the mirror and walks away. 
And Psalm 1 doesn't set the bar so low. There's two types of people. There are people who run with sinners and those who read the Bible. No, Psalm 1 makes the standard. There is the people who run with and surround themselves with the counsel of the wicked. And there are those who delight in Scripture. And they just chew on it. And they just chew on it. And it doesn't mean that this is somebody who studies Greek and Hebrew. It can be something as simple as taking one verse and just thinking on it. I was talking to a dear brother recently. He was telling me about how one verse, one verse in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes back to time and time again. He hasn't looked at it in Greek. I don't think he's looked at any commentaries. But just one verse gives him strength and encouragement in his daily struggle. It can be something as simple as that. So this word meditate doesn't necessarily describe depth of study, although I encourage you to study deeply. But the clear picture is this day in and day out scriptures on my mind. I'm living by the word of God. How do I find strength to persevere? How do I find strength to fight temptation? Through the word of God. Where do I look for encouragement when I'm discouraged? The word of God. I'm living by this. I'm living by this. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This theme of day in, day out, constant meditation, speaking, thinking about the Bible, is not just a piece of hyperbole from Psalm 1. Rather, it's a theme that start to finish is found in Scripture. As Israel is gathering on the far side of the Jordan, and Moses is once again laying out the law covenant with them, after recounting God's mighty deeds, in chapter 6, he begins now to lay out their responsibilities. And first and foremost, in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. There's the first and greatest commandment. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you get the point? God wants his people to be a people of the book. He wants them thinking about it, talking about it. Now the Pharisees took it literally. They'd have these boxes where they'd put that verse crumpled up on their forehead. They called it a phylactery. They took it very seriously, but they're missing the point. This is hyperbole. I so want you consumed with my word that everywhere you go, everywhere you look, there it is. And this is the blessed man from Psalm 1. He's trying to fulfill this. Again, this is an ideal if we're all honest, this is not what we spend every waking thought thinking about. It is an ideal, but it is, it, it is one that we need to desire and move towards. It is not enough to read our Bible in the morning and then go and not think about it for the rest of the day. It, just think about it this way. If you spend 10 or 15 minutes in the morning reading your Bible or at night, but for the rest of the day, your mind is on things of this world, at best and at worst, the wisdom of this world, where is your mind for the majority of the day? If you think of a, a tea bag steeping in a hot cup of tea, you're not going to have very strong tea if the tea bag just, you dip it in for a couple of seconds and you pull it out. 
But if you, if you leave that tea bag in for minutes and hours, it permeates and the, and the tea becomes strong. And it's the same concept with Scripture. It, it's not enough to read it. It's not a magic book. But to think about, to, 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 to consider, to apply in day-to-day life, to talk about in the way, this is what Scripture would have us do. This is the path to blessedness. Or this is rather what someone on the path to blessedness looks like. So here's the first contrast. There are two different delights. And that brings us to our third point, that these two desires, these two delights, these are mutually exclusive delights. These are mutually exclusive delights. There are only two paths. There's no third path. There's the path to life, there's the path to death, there's the path of blessing, and the path of cursing. There's the narrow path, there's the broad path. And most of us, honestly, would probably feel a lot more comfortable if there were a third path. You know, what about the guy who delights in the word at times, and at other times, you know, walks in the counsel of the wicked? Because if we're all honest, that sometimes is, is us. But the challenge for us is which one of these are we moving towards? Because make no mistake, these two passions, these two counsels, these two mind-saturating influences are at odds with each other. And they are mutually exclusive. They are mutually exclusive. James 4.4 says, You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. As we move into the wisdom and the counsel of the world, our relationship with the Lord takes on one of hostility. They're mutually exclusive. Or better yet, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And and I, I trust that most of you remember from Months ago, this whole concept of putting off and putting on. You stop doing this, you start doing this. Peter, in line with that type of thinking, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, 25, has a put off and a put on for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And his word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And so what he's saying is sin is going to clog your appetite. You got, you got to cast off the sin to make ready for an appetite for scripture. Maybe if, if you're here today and, and you don't find Scripture is your delight, if there are things you'd rather think about, then maybe it's worth considering, could it be that I'm spoiling my appetite on other things? I mean, every parent knows that it's easy to spoil your child's appetite so that when the good food comes, they're not hungry because they've eaten lesser food. They spoiled their appetite with candy. The same thing happens here. Sin can clog our appetite for God's word. Or to put it simply, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. These are mutually exclusive. You can't spend a little time over here and a little time over there. But rather, we are moving in one of these two directions at all times. Our life may have the appearance of a little of both. 
But the, the challenge for us is really which path are we headed on? Because the results, the consequences are dire or wonderful depending on which way we approach it. So those are, that's the first contrast, two different delights. Let's look at some of the consequences. Two different depictions. Two different depictions. The writer of Psalm 1, probably David, uses poetic imagery to describe the consequence. Now this is all consequence. The rest of what follows is consequence. Passive words are used. It just all flows out of that first contrast. So the two depictions. First, the depiction or the picture of the righteous. Let's just read verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. That's just a, isn't that a delightful picture? Wouldn't you like to be a stable, prospering, fruitful tree? I mean, we've seen just in the past few months what happens to trees and crops that don't get water. They don't look so good. But one of the few places around here that you can still see greenery is near water sources, especially rivers. And so the psalmist depicts this man who's steeping his mind in Scripture, who's thinking through the thoughts of God, like this tree. Literally, it's transplanted. It's, it's an Eastern, um, Near Eastern way of, of cultivating trees. They transplant them where they've made little rivers of water through so that the tree would always have access to life-giving water. The tree is transplanted and consequently it yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. So this tree then is stable, secure, and cared for. And I bring the cared for out from this transplanted Somebody has put this tree here. Somebody is caring for this tree. Somebody is irrigating water for this tree. And we know in our instance that somebody is the Lord God. That if we will steep and saturate our mind in Scripture, He's caring for us. He's looking out for us. He's directing the things that we need into our lives. And that as our roots go deep and as we drink deeply from the Word, we receive the strength and the power we need to live. Another thing to notice is this, not only is this tree itself blessed, but then it becomes a blessing to others. This tree is a blessing to others. It's blessed and a blessing. Why do I say that? Well, it's bearing fruit. And fruit itself doesn't do much good for trees. It might help grow other trees. But a fruitful tree is a blessing to others. And if you think about it as as you look at godly people who it's clear they're stable in the Lord their roots go deep times and trial don't shake them radically well not only are they secure not only are they blessed but those are the very same people who most in turn bless others this is not only the path to personal blessing but the path to being a blessing to others and it all hinges on what we do with this book it all hinges on what we do with God's truth. Which brings us then to the contrast. The picture of the wicked. And they are unstable like chaff. They are unstable like chaff. You couldn't think of a more extreme contrast. Think of a big, strong oak tree with roots going deep near a river. 
And then think of chaff. For those of you who don't know what chaff is, it's the outer casing or the shell around some seed plant. In this case, probably wheat. Um, you, you see the little pieces of dust and flutter that are left after the corn is harvested. It's, the way that what they would do is they would take the, the wheat, the grain, and they would break it so that the shell would break off, and then they would throw it up in the air. And the wind would take the chaff away. And the heavy, good seed would fall to the ground. And if you were an Israelite, this would be a common thing that you would see. See people up on hills, usually on hills, throwing this broken seed up as the wind carries the chaff away and the heavy seed falls down. Now you picture just watching one of those little pieces of chaff floating on the breeze and the contrast between that and an oak tree. <laughs> I mean, just imagine trying to talk about the stability of the chaff. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> the stability of the... Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's silly. I mean, could there be a greater contrast of stability and security? And what fruit does the chaff bring forth? Nothing. It is good for nothing. <clears throat> except rotting and becoming topsoil. Contrast that with a fruitful tree planted by streams of water. And that may lead us to think, but wait, we see wicked people prospering in the world all around us. Well, that's true. And for a time, they do. The psalmist in Psalm 73 makes that observation. As he's wrestling with God, why do the wicked prosper? And in verses 16 to 20, he says this. When I thought how to understand this, how to understand the fact that frequently the wicked do prosper, um, it was a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And what he's saying is, sure, the wicked can prosper for a time. But their end is sudden. And even in their prosperity, that prosperity is fragile, tenuous, uncertain. We've seen the rich and powerful and famous in this world in a moment have their lives turned upside down. And we've seen the despair and the hopelessness that can accompany that. Um, you, you'd like to think that America's wealthiest and most popular and beautiful would be the happiest people, but that's not the case. They're the people most in therapy. Because the blessings of this world don't provide true stability. The good things in this life are not the things that anchor our soul or our lives. So these depictions could not be more different. And finally, we have two different destinies. Two different destinies. So in this life, stability. For the blessed path. And again, starting with the wicked in verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And now we get to sort of the end game of these two paths. Where do these roads lead? Well, for the wicked, it leads to judgment, death, and hell. The wicked are condemned in judgment, excluded from God's people, and unknown by the Lord. And again, unknown here, not meaning that the Lord is not aware of their existence, but in that relational knowledge that Jesus uses in Matthew 7, where he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He doesn't know the way of the wicked, not like this. They're condemned in judgment. They will not stand. They're excluded from God's people. Of course, they're always welcome to to turn and believe. But, But they're excluded from the blessings that we experience as a family in this church. As God ministers grace through and to each other. They're out in the world following their own paths. By contrast, look at the righteous. They're justified. The implication, they will stand in the judgment. They're justified. They are welcomed into the assembly of God. They're welcomed. They're justified. They're welcomed. And they're known. They are known by God. In Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew. Again, relational knowledge. So in life, you can be an oak tree or you can be chaff. In the judgment, you can stand justified with God's people, be known by the living God, or you can be condemned. And the frightening thing is, if you look back at this psalm, it all goes back to and hinges on the first two verses. Everything else that flows out of it is result, consequence. And that may seem like an awfully big stakes for what you do with God's truth, but turn to 2 Thessalonians. Nearly identical imagery is used. 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, verses 9 to 12, we read the following. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth. And so be saved. Why are they perishing? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, there it is. They loved the path of the sinner, the counsel of the wicked, and the seed of the scoffer. They did not love or delight in the truth and they perish. It's the same split the same dichotomy that Psalm 1 lays out. Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so where does that leave us then? I mean, here are these two frightening ideals. On the one hand, this godly, blessed person who day and night is meditating and thinking about Scripture, which I hope all of us would love to attain, but none of us dare say we've arrived at. And On the other side is this person who progressively is spending more and more time with the ungodly, with the wicked. They're walking in the way, they're standing, they're sitting, their mind is being conformed. And again, hopefully none of us would be the end product of that, but we may see in our lives traces of some time we spend with scoffers. And Well, what do we do? Well, flip over your notes, and 
I think what we need to do is learn how to cultivate a love of the word. Learn how to cultivate a love of the word. Because like all wisdom literature, these are ideals. And so the, the question is, which one are you moving towards? Which one are you growing in? So don't, don't beat yourself up and say, well, I don't meditate on God's word day and night. I guess I'm going to hell. That, that's not the point. The point is, are you growing in love for God's word? And, and let me stop and, and say here up front that we, we don't believe in justification by loving scripture. We believe in justification by faith. Which is to say there's a piece of God's word called the gospel that that'd be the place where I'd start loving and meditating. I'd start with the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners on the cross, bearing our sin, paying the penalty we could never pay, rising again on the third day, and by faith in him that we can be forgiven. That's gotta be the first piece of God's word, his law, his truth, that you come to love and receive by faith. That's how you get on that path. The way you get on the path to blessing is through faith in Jesus Christ, through receiving and believing the gospel. And then as you go down that path, you receive and believe the rest of God's word and delight in it. So how do you do that if you're a Christian here today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ? How do you grow? How do you cultivate a love of the word? I just put together three thoughts that I thought would be helpful. One, ask the Lord to change your heart. We all know it's impossible to reach inside ourselves and turn our desires. I mean, who here would not love to simply turn off pride, turn off the fear of man, and I wonder what people think of me, to turn off sin? It can't be done. But God can do it. And we have examples of this very type of prayer in Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 36. O Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies. Literally, turn my heart towards your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Or a little earlier in the psalm, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. The psalmist is recognizing utter dependency on God to change his heart towards scripture, to open his eyes to see beautiful things. If you read your Bible and you want to love it, but honestly find it kind of boring, confusing at times, be honest with God, like the psalmist, and say, God, will you open my eyes? Will you change my heart? Will you help me grow in the, in the knowledge of scripture? This isn't something you can do for yourself and grit your teeth and I'm gonna love the Bible. <laughs> it can't be done. It can't be done. But Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. These are prayers, friends, that God answers. As if our Father in heaven, figure it out for yourself. No, these are the very things he wants us to pray. The Psalms give us that roadmap. These are good things to ask for. Don't feel foolish asking God to put a love or to grow your love for his word in your heart. Secondly, we sort of saw a little bit of this already. Deal with sin and remove distractions from your life. Deal with sin and remove distractions from your life. First Peter 2, 1 to 2 showed us that sometimes you've got to put away the malice and the deceit and the hypocrisy and the envy and the slander so that like newborn infants, we can long for the pure spiritual milk. Maybe the reason we don't love the word as we should is because there's sin clogging our appetite for it. I don't know about you, but when my conscience is a little guilty, 
I don't really want to read the Bible. <laughs> it's like, it's like going to a bright light when you're dirty and not wanting it to be seen. Or also Hebrews 12:1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the weights that is set before us. Now there's two things the author of Hebrews tells us to get rid of. Sin and weight. Some of your translations may say hindrances. And if you're running a race, it is not illegal to wear snowshoes to run a race. It's just not a really good idea. It is perfectly legal when running a race to tie weights to yourself. I think you will find most of the Olympians fail to do this practice, right? There are, there are things in our life that are lawful and good and permissible that are not helpful. And perhaps there are some things we're clogging our lives up with activities, things we can pour ourselves into that are good in and of themselves, but they can start to hedge out our love and desire for God's word. Maybe be a good place to pray, God, are there things in my life, distractions, that are usurping my heart's love for you and your word? Maybe we just need to get some time alone and, and turn off the television and spend some time with God and, and, and ask God to work in our hearts. Thirdly, we just need to read the word in faith and reliance upon the Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Don't just sit back and wait for a miracle to happen and wait for one day you wake up and you... It finally happened. I want to read the Bible. Ask God to change your heart. Deal with sin. And then trust that God is doing it. Act the miracle as a uh, certain conference coming up in the fall will unpack. Step out in faith, trusting that God has answered your prayer. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Holy Spirit, one of the reasons God gave his Holy Spirit to you and to me, was precisely so we could understand and have illumined minds in reading the Bible. Isn't that, isn't that good news? You've got the person who wrote the Bible living inside of you, if you're God's son or daughter. And his, one of his express purposes in your life is to help you understand what you're reading. So we're off to a good start here. Got a lot of reason to be hopeful. And, and 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. Which means even when you don't want to and you read the Bible, there is profit to it. Don't settle for that. But sometimes you've got to get up and say, Lord, I don't really want to read your word. I know I should. Lord, would you please change my heart? Would you please help me to delight in your word? Lord, is there some sin in my life that's making it so that I don't want to do this? Are there things clogging my life? And Lord, now as I read your word, even though I still really don't want to, would you bless it? Would you give the increase? Would you let there be profit in my life? Th these are prayers that God answers. These are prayers that God answers. And finally, the, the last thought I have, last tip I have for you is this. And this has been really instrumental for, for my prayer life and my reading of the Psalms, is pray the Psalms. Learn to pray the Psalms. And what I mean by that is this. Not what Jesus forbids or ridicules, which is rote prayers and memorization, but like I was talking about earlier where we use the Psalms to guide our prayers, much like the Lord's Prayer is not meant to be just rote recited, but rather focus on this theme and then focus on this theme, praying the Psalms. In fact, I want to close our service now praying Psalm 1. 
praying that God would turn us into those blessed people. And then we're going to have a time of communion. But let's prepare for communion. John, if you want to come down. Um, by closing our Bibles, I'm just going to pray for us that God would give us these hearts. Lord God, we confess it is our desire to become those blessed men and women, Lord. We want the joy and the blessedness that comes from knowing you better, from knowing your word more fully. Lord, we want that blessing. And so, Lord, we pray that you would keep us from walking in the counsel of the wicked. Help us to see it coming and, and avoid it. Lord, stop us from standing in the way of sinners, from, from finding our deepest friendship and our greatest fellowship with people who hate you and ridicule you. Lord, guard us from sitting in the seat of scoffers that we would begin to identify ourselves with the ungodly, Lord. Lord, give us hearts that delight in your word. We cannot make ourselves delight in something we don't delight in. And we see how crucial that is here. So Lord, give us that delight. Give us that desire of our hearts. Turn us into lovers of your word. And Lord, we pray that that delight and that desire would, would bear fruit in the reading and the meditation of your word. And that that would bear fruit in the transformation of our lives, Lord, that through the reading of your word, through the meditating on your word, you would, you would turn us into planted trees. That when trial comes, when sickness comes, when difficulties come, we would not be shaken for our roots go deep, deep in your gospel, deep in your word trusting that you care for us, knowing that in season we will bear fruit, knowing that we will prosper through your grace. Lord, don't, don't let us be like the chaff that, that the wind drives away, completely unstable, completely useless. Lord, we need more than anything to be able to stand in judgment. Your gospel provides for that. So, Lord, we rejoice knowing that we have a Savior who died for us so that when we stand before you, we will stand in judgment, not on our own merit, not by anything we have done, but through the work and the merit of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we rejoice to be part of your congregation. We rejoice to be part of your church. And, Lord, we rejoice that we are known by you, that we can call you Father, that you know us each personally and individually, Lord. We thank you that while we were your enemies, we thank you that while we were the wicked, while we were perishing, your son died for us. And through his blood, we can be reconciled to you and no longer perish. Lord God, turn us into these blessed, righteous people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.